0: Bless you. So we're getting started here. If you would open your books to the seventh chapter of Matthew, just a few brief things. Do catch that uh, both the meditation listed in your bulletin by Dr. Sproul, the Philippians one passage, Rachel read um, uh, Psalm 92. Those are all connected. Scripture is a cohesive whole. These are all connected with what I'm going to talk about. I've settled down a little bit, but I told the first service that I was a bit shaken. Uh, Yesterday, I went to the YMCA to work out, and a man walked up to me and started telling me about how he had heard Benny Hinn preach about demonic DNA. and I gently tried to correct him about his theology, and I think another man— overhearing that walked up to me and said I was diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer and you know my dad who's passed away always told me that the most important thing I could ever do in life was to know the word he was right wasn't he he was looking for affirmation and then a third man grant you I don't know these people they don't know me A third man walked up to me, told me his new diagnosis, which is a pretty severe one, and asked, what should he do? And what he was really asking me, you could see in his eyes, had nothing to do with his medical diagnosis and everything to do with his spiritual diagnosis. And then, despite the fact that I speak a lot, last night I did not sleep. I kept having these odd dreams. I I brought the wrong sermon notes. I turned the page, and it was blank. I forgot what I was going to say. And it occurred to me this morning, this might be a message that the deceiver didn't want preached. He doesn't want to hear any message preached. In fact, um, after the first service, somebody said to me, you know, uh, when you preach, uh, there should be a charge. And I said, I don't think it's fair that I should be charged to preach. (laughs) Anyway... I decided to write this sermon. You like that one? (laughs) Oh no! Now they're going to think about it. (laughs) I decided to write this sermon after hearing uh, John MacArthur preach on the seventh chapter of Matthew, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a crack at this and try to enlarge and expound, uh, expand on some of those uh, ideas. So this morning you're you're going to get to listen in as Jesus teaches very directly what true faith is and what it isn't. You also get to listen in as I preach to myself. I'm always aware that when I share the word, it's me that needs to listen uh, more than anybody. I'm, I'm always aware of the gulf between what we're called to and, and where I am. So buckle your seatbelts. I am pretty hard on myself, as you'll hear Let me start with an example. Somebody wrote this once. If I were to explain to you, truly explain Christianity to you, and you were to truly understand it, it would have such a significant way of working into your life that it would really mess things up. You would have to rethink the meaning of your life, of success, of the use of money, of time, of family, of church, of worship, of everything. And the question that arises, do you want that? Let's start in prayer. Dear Lord, help us as we examine this clear-cut but difficult teaching. In it, you tell us exactly what true faith looks like and how to enter into your kingdom. But we are reticent, Lord. These words scare us, for we know deep inside we can't do them absent the strength of your Helper, the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us faith to know and trust in the life-saving gospel of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, physicians are... through What's called case studies. So we take a case and we dissect it, so to speak, and we learn and extract lessons. And today Jesus is giving us just such a case study on true faith versus false faith. The problem is that we live in Babylon. We live in a culture, as the prophet Isaiah would say, of people with unclean lips who tell us lies. And the problem is those lies have a way of working their way into our lives. And even when told the truth, we are sometimes reticent to give up those lies. Lies such as these, all roads lead to God. We're the captains of our own destiny. Life should be, as we define it, fair. Or, when I hear a lot, I'm basically Good. God is merciful. He'll let us all into heaven. Their lives. lies. The problem is that one of the cultural predispositions, I guess, is that we're self-righteous. Sin has permeated every aspect of our lives. We're not as bad or evil. Nobody is as bad or evil as they could be. Praise God for common grace. But everything in us is distorted in one way or another. So we think and we truly believe inside that we're good enough. But it's a lie. Proverbs 30, verse 12 says, there's a generation that's pure in its own eyes, but is not yet washed of its filth. And so in our text this morning, Jesus is going to teach something critical for us to understand. Now, despite these are hard words, preached with passion They are done so in love, even though they may not be what we want to hear Jesus say to us. Unlike us, Jesus deals in absolutes. You ever hear people say, well, that's black and white. Like there should be no black and white. There should be no clear separation. But there is. Our culture believes in relative truth. Jesus, in absolute truth. He believes in absolute right. We believe in we, people, in relative right or wrong. His standards are high and black and white and absolute. And ours are relative. So we're going to go verse by verse. Context is important here. Remember that this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting to the very last part of it. Jesus has been teaching those who would follow him, his disciples, what they look like. And this now is the concluding sermon, if you will, the concluding teaching in Matthew 7. So we'll start with verse 13. Enter by, and I'll emphasize certain words that I want you to catch, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What is this narrow gate? Why is it described as being so narrow? Well, it's narrow because it goes through one and only one gate. And who is that gate? It's Jesus. No other way is possible. Now, it's true what the culture says, that all roads lead to Jesus, but they lead to the judgment throne. For believers, that's a hallelujah. For non-believers, that's a fearsome thing. But it's the whole point of his illustration. No Jesus, no heaven, period. The narrow gate is a way of symbolizing the exclusive nature of Christ's kingdom. It's only through him and no other way. I looked up the, the, the semantic range of the Greek word for hard, since that word appears several times in it, and it means suffering and persecution. Jesus is saying that the way to him is a road of suffering and persecution. Do you want to hear that? I think most of us don't want to hear that. The other choice, of course, is the wide gate, the one with the broad, easy road. It's the road most are on. It's crowded. It's fun. Nothing's demanded of you. Everyone approves. So why not? That's why it's called the easy road. It has no restrictions. Everybody is welcome. Here's an advantage. You get to decide what your truth is, not Jesus' truth. How convenient. Remember Judges twenty-one, verse 25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you sense that in our culture sometimes? What was that in relation to? The judgment on Israel. And it was a harsh fall. The irony, of course, is that the easy way soon becomes the very hard way. Irreversibly and eternally hard with no way out. It leads to only one place, and that's hell. And lest we misthink about hell. Hell is not a place where you're you know, burned up and that's it. You will always have an eternal soul. But in hell... Everything will be stripped away that you depended on. Your money, your influence, your friends, anything that wasn't Jesus. By contrast, the road that starts out hard, it leads to life, eternal life. And it becomes easy. What did Jesus, in fact, reassure us with? My yoke is light. It becomes easy. And Jesus says this remarkable thing, something that I really want to call your attention to as you look at it in Scripture. It should stop us in our tracks. This narrow gate, he says, turns out that there are few who find it. Jesus is saying that few will find this. And I think many people are genuinely going to be shocked by that absolute truth. Just how narrow is this gate that leads to life? It turns out it's very narrow. You can't squeeze through it or under it. You can't attach yourself and somebody else bring you in. It's very costly to get through. In fact, Luke expounds on this in chapter 13. He says, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved really be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, that is, himself. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter. They will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, notice what Jesus just said. There are people who seem to seek. This is not genuine seeking, who seem to seek to enter. They say they want to be with Jesus. So what's the problem? They want to do it on their terms. They want to define God as somebody who believes exactly what they believe. So it all works very easy. Nothing asked. Nothing sacrificed. They've made God in their image and not the other way around. And they won't make it. Listen to what Luke says as he goes on. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside <clears throat> and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. What is he going to say? He's going to say, I do not know where you come from. And you'll say, but I don't understand. We, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our homes and streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. And then this shocking phrase from me. And notice what he calls them. You workers of evil. That's strong words. Notice that they're shocked. They thought surely they're in. And on their own terms according to what they judged was good enough. But Jesus doesn't mince any words here for these these self-righteous people. In fact, as I said, he calls them workers of evil. And so too Anyone who rejects his command to follow me. That command to follow me is the road of suffering and persecution. Going on now to Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. After all, are grapes gathered From thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. So who are the false prophets? The false prophets, to be blunt, are the prosperity preachers, the celebrities, the cultural elite, the organizations that appeal to our sinful nature. It's anything or anybody that points away from the absolute truths of Christ. They don't call it false, of course. They call it progressive or changing things for the current culture, updating it. And they appeal to human wants and to human reason. That's why Christ calls them false prophets. Now, Scripture has something interesting in here. It says they're dressed in wool. Who cares what they're dressed in? It turns out to be an important clue. The prophets of old wore an outer wool garment. So a false prophet wearing a wool garment is camouflage. Jesus is telling, beware, be discerning, know scripture, know the fruits of the Spirit, because these guys are camouflaged. You won't recognize them. They're wolves who mean to devour you. And they point not to Christ, not to the hard, difficult road, but to the broad, easy road, the road we'd rather travel. So how can you tell who's the shepherd and who's the wolf? Jesus tells us, as I mentioned, by their fruit. Are they self-serving or are they suffering servants? Do they demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22? Like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control? You have to be wise. And where does this wisdom come from? That's why we need to be reading the word. Jesus goes on to say that these trees are going to be thrown into the fire. Guess what fire he's referring to? Fires of hell. The torment of hell. Forever. Now verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this is remarkable. Don't be fooled here. Those who were doomed to destruction actually say. They call upon the Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. They they say it twice for more emphasis. Notice in verse 22, they even do miraculous things. They prophesy. They cast out demons. They do mighty works. Just like Judas did. Don't be fooled. And yet Jesus will say to them those terrible words. I never knew you. Depart from me. Jesus is teaching and defining two types of faith here. False faith and true faith. So what's false faith? It's trusting in your works, your way, on your terms. Might I say the Western way, the American way. It's trusting in anything that is not Jesus. What John MacArthur called, and I'm going to quote him directly because I think he said it so well, trusting in human achievement instead of divine accomplishment. An elegant way of saying nothing of this is born of your and my works. This is a work of grace, of pure grace, It's really hard for us to disabuse ourselves of the notion of works. There's nothing you and I can do to merit salvation. What does Ephesians 2, 8 say? For it is by grace through faith that you are saved. And this just to be sure everybody understood not of your works. There's not a millimeter piece of works in this is the work of the Holy Spirit. How about true faith? That one's easy. It's everything in this book. Everything. Every word, every phrase is equally inspired. It is equally authoritative. It is equally breathed out by God himself to admonish and teach and instruct us Now this is going to upset some, I think. True faith in Jesus means complete submission to Christ. How do we rebels do that? We'll come to that. And by the way, don't dismiss this point lightly. In later in Matthew, in in chapter twenty-five, in verse thirty-one and following. We read about what the final judgment is going to look like when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, those on his right, he will come. He will say, come, you who are blessed, inherit the kingdom and the righteous will answer him puzzled lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink i don't remember doing that when did we welcome you or clothe you when did we see you sick or visit you in prison do you catch what's happened here they didn't do it because others were looking they didn't do it to look good. They didn't do it because they were doing it to a person of influence. They did it because, permeated with the spirit, they can't help but do it. Do you ever get that urging? Go talk to that person. I see it all the time. We live on Marco Island, and we walk around the lake, and there are benches around it, and I'll see somebody sitting there alone. And you can just tell by their posture. And Gene and I will stop, inquire about their day, talk with them. And many, many times we've had an hour-long conversation about what's really needed in life. And I, I treasure those. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they are also going to be surprised. They'll say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? And these will go away, he says, into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. The obvious lesson here, of course, is be a sheep and not a goat. Notice that both groups were surprised. But the self-righteous goats? Genuinely shocked and surprised. Comfortable in their own wisdom. Just as many goats will be surprised and shocked on that day of the Lord. But on to verse 24 now in chapter 7. This is the concluding verse of the Sermon on the Mount. And it ends with a parable. It's a parable that works, as you'll see soon, really well in the Middle East and in Southwest Florida. Jesus is teaching us that each of us have to choose. Which gate? Which road? His approval or man's approval? True faith or faith made in our own image or man's image? All right. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on, let me emphasize, the. Rock, Not the Greek word for a rock or a rock of many rocks, but the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And he says, and great was the fall of it build our house on anything but the rock of Christ we will be disappointed all of us here for the most part are old enough to have learned that we've seen that Jesus is warning us here we, we know what he demands of those who are his will we be wise building our lives on the rock of ages or on the shifting sands of man's approval By the way, the words wise and foolish in this passage refer not to intellect, but to one's spiritual condition. You're wise if you follow Jesus' teaching, and foolish if you don't. The coming storm referred to is the judgment that will come on Christ's return. And he will return. It's a picture of divine judgment on those with no faith, or those with false faith. And those who build their house, their lives on anything but Christ will have their lives fall apart. And Jesus says, and great will be the fall. So what does building our lives on the rock look like? It's really another way of asking who are Christ's true disciples. The disciple is hungry for God's word. They read it, they study it, they memorize it, they practice it in their lives. And I encourage every one of us to be readings. This is a new year. Great time to reinvigorate and start a reading program. If any of you are interested, I'll give you the link to Ligonier Ministries, which has hyperlinks to 16 different Bible reading plans. And there's one there for for everybody. The doomed, of course, would rather be entertained, having no appetite for what God says. The disciple tells everyone about Jesus and how he changed their life. They can't help it. That's why they were surprised that they had spoken to angels. The doomed? Well, it's too embarrassing to talk about King Jesus. Someone might think poorly of them or not want friendship with them. The disciple carries a cross. The disciple expects to lie down on that cross. And except the nails of cultural disapproval driven into his hands and feet, the doomed man runs from it. Talk about black and white abstracts here. Notice the contrast that we have talked about. Two choices in our lives. Two gates, the wide or narrow. Two ways, the broad or narrow. Two outcomes for our lives, life or destruction. Two groups of people, sheep or goats. Two trees, good or bad. Two types of fruit, good or bad. Two builders, wise or foolish. Two foundations, rock or sand. Two houses, one that stands or falls. And two calls on our life, Jesus or the culture. Did you catch what isn't there? No third option. It is black and white, one or the other. It is a tale of two, two choices and only two. No compromising middle road that's so comfortable. And that's why Jesus is saying, few will enter. Now, I know this is hard teaching. I know I have preached it with some passion. But these are Christ's words. They're not mine. These are Christ's words. They cannot be compromised. And I am acutely aware that when I preach, I am held accountable to preach exactly as I understand them and as authentically as I'm able. Every urge in me, in our rebellious nature, and reinforced by the culture, and everything that's a part of those lies that following Jesus costs nothing. But that's wrong. That's why after some hard teaching to his own disciples, can you imagine being among the people who saw Jesus, who touched him, who broke bread with him, who walked with him, who were taught directly by him. John records this stunning conversation in chapter 6 in verses 66 and following. He said, after this, that is his teaching, Jesus' teaching about the cost of following him, many of his own disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And I can only imagine, this is me reading into it, I can only imagine, and I do imagine it, as Jesus turning sorrowfully maybe even with tears in his eyes, to the twelve, saying, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, answers to him, Lord, where would we even go? Who would we even turn to? You and you alone have the words of eternal life and we have believed. We've come to know. You are the Holy One of God. And yet, many do turn away. And So the obvious question after this kind of teaching is, will you? Paul says in Philippians 3.18, and Scripture records here that he says this with tears in his eyes, that many walk as enemies of God because their minds... Are set on, that is attached strongly to earthly things. Those who are God's are citizens of heaven, he says, and their minds are attached strongly to the things of God. So, how do Christ's words change us? What shall we do? Are we really prepared to suffer, to be persecuted, to be marginalized? Arrested, to lose our fortunes, to be persecuted for Christ, to abandon our comfort, to comfort the least of these, to give up our way for His way, to live and die in a new, radically transformed way, to give up the comfort of the wide, easy road and of building our house, houses and lives on sand, and instead, live and die on the rock of affliction and persecution for Christ? What hope is there for us when everything in us wants to run away from hardship? Take a look at the questions that I put in the bulletin insert. They're hard and they're meant to be hard for a reason. What would you actually choose? I'll be honest with you, that I'm the one that wrote them. I read them as I'm writing them and saying, what can I do? It's not always clear that I would say yes. So what can I do? And the answer is a really hard one for us. I think particularly in the Western church. But it's a one-word answer. Nothing. There's nothing you and I can do. The life Christ calls us to is impossible. Emphasis here. By ourselves. By our works. By our will. It's impossible. Let me say it again. So no one walks out of here misunderstanding impossible by ourselves. But our work is not what matters. We are saved by grace through faith. Whose work is that? The Holy Spirit. Praise God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit and not of us. That is why our hope centers on Jesus. Because Jesus can has promised, will, and is doing it in the lives of believers. Now, that doesn't take away human agency. We can do some things. And here's what I did, and I will therefore commend it to you. In the quiet of your own closet or your room, fall on your face in prayer. Realize what has been done, what will be likely at one or more points in our lives we will be called to do and we need the strength to do it and that is beseech God to grow our faith or to give us the gift of faith to enable us to see his wisdom and to follow him no matter the cost to submit to him Jesus says a little earlier in in Matthew in chapter 7 Ask, and it will be given to you. He's telling us how to do this. Seek, and you will find it. He even uses some visual imagery. Knock. Keep knocking. And it will be given to you. What do we learn about the woman who hemorrhaged for so many years? Well, one, doctors don't always have the answer, okay? Let's get that one out of the way. But two, to not stop pleading and asking. He is faithful. I know that in my own life. He will answer. It's not always the answer we want. But it is the answer that I promise is best for us. How can I promise it? Because scripture promises it. And I believe scripture to be absolute truth. For those of you who are unsure or hesitant, keep knocking on the door. Just keep knocking on the door. He is faithful to rescue us from ourselves by sending His Holy Spirit who will draw you, strengthen you, revive you, regenerate you. But only when we move past the outward, superficial aspects of faith to the inward, deep transformation of belief in Christ who will change everything. One of the ways you know you're growing in the faith, everything, big or small, is changing. I once preached a sermon on that that I called, after some terrible things that happened, faith quakes. God brings faith quakes into our lives. What I don't want you to do, please, brothers and sisters, do not read those questions and be discouraged. That's not what they're for. They are for a matter of prayer. They're not to discourage you. None of us measure up. Only Christ can fulfill those questions in our lives. So don't be discouraged. We are imperfect beings who need the love of God, the indwelling of Christ and the help of the Holy Spirit to sustain us in our faith he will answer your prayers in our denomination we believe in the perseverance of the saints and that should be one of those pillars that like all the pillars of calvinism that we hold on to he will never let you go you will never be irreversibly lost you will never suffer anything that is not only in his control but for your good as hard as that is to hear Jesus loves you so much that he does what anybody who truly loves another should do. With gentleness, tell them the truth. The truth. As hard as that is, knowing that some, maybe even many, will turn away. If they turned away from Jesus, they will turn away from you and I. But our job is to point the way, not to count our successes, because that gets to be a work. It's to point the way, to stand in the rain and the snow and the cold and figuratively point the way. Well, now you know the truth. Beware the false prophets. Beware the wide, easy road. Beware the bad fruit, the shifting sands. Beware the wide road to, dis- to d- destruction. The fact is, and you and I learned it in Sunday school, Jesus loved us, this I know. But that was never in question. The question is, do we love him enough to follow him completely? He waits and knocks on the door of each heart here. Ephesians 5.14 admonishes us, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Lord Jesus, you have told us plainly what true faith in you is and what it isn't. Help us all, Lord, to do your will. Lead us, Lord. Teach what must be taught. Strengthen us with hope. As we travel down the hard, narrow way of truth to you. You and only you, Lord, are our rescuer, our savior, our deliverer, our redeemer. You are the only safe ground upon which to build the house of our faith and our lives. Strengthen us that we may fellowship with you forever and ever and ever. And so, having heard the word of God preached, let's respond as we stand together and sing. I love thy kingdom, Lord. Just a moment, I will pronounce the benediction, but I urge you, brothers and sisters, to realize that you go now, each of you, into your mission field, remembering always that we live Coram Deo, that is, before the very face of the living God. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all those who belong to God said together, Amen. Amen.